that I'm that I'm recording this, and you'll now see a, something pop on your screen which says "Got it." So just click on that, and it'll that thing will go away, and all of you know that you're going to be recorded. But we are having an intimate group today. We'll probably have only a few more people join us if that's the statistics that normally happen. And the goal here is for each of you to try to help me grow the group by inviting others from your uh, family and communities of interest and friends to know that this is happening. Um, this program is called Adore Vador. And so the idea is for us to talk about our stories, our family stories together. And so I'm gonna start by uh, calling out, uh, and asking each one of you to tell us a little bit about yourself, where are you from, and how your story relates to, we all are, knowing that I know every one of you, all of us are related as two Gs to the Shoah, so I would love for you to be able to tell us a little bit, we'll try to keep your story a little bit short, you know, maybe three minutes to five minutes, but we have plenty of time today uh, to get to know each other, and um, I'll start with Mark. Go ahead, Mark. Thank you so much. <laughs> yeah, um, we live now in Florida in a place called The Villages. And we did live on Long Island and in Whitestone, Queens. I was born in Germany. I will be telling you a little bit about my story. And I guess my parents who were Holocaust survivors from Poland you know, they, I think what I remember most is when my mom used to go to dinner and she would have aluminum foil in her pocketbook. And it always sort of made me wonder, you know, what it was in her past that made her like that. And I always remember her always saying to me, Mark, you have to eat every crumb on your plate. And the last crumb was called the cuscala. And she would tell me if I didn't eat the last cuscala, then all the children in Europe would starve to death. So because I'm going to share more about my story with you later, I just want to say that it's a pleasure to be here and it's an honor. And as you're going to see, it's kind of unusual for me. So thank you very much. And I hope that you enjoy my presentation. All right, I'm going to go over to Keith since Keith is your son, and maybe you can introduce yourself. And also you have a, you have a little bit of a uh, story around the book that you wrote, and I want you to clue everyone into your, your work that you've done. Okay, well, hey everybody, thank you for having us. I know you're gonna enjoy dad's presentation. Um, uh, I am Keith Newhouse. Um, I live in Orlando, well, just outside of Orlando in Winter Garden. Um, originally from Long Island, as dad said. Uh, I now, for a living, design online graduate courses for colleges across the country, and dad and I run a publishing company together. So one of the first things we did, besides dad's books, is I wrote my own first book called My Tio's Pulse. And if anybody remembers the Pulse tragedy in 2016, it was the nightclub shooting. Um, I, everybody in Orlando was very affected by it. So I wanted to do something to give back. And I had an idea to write a book about it. We then had 22 artists donate illustrations for the book. We had a psychotherapist who helped with writing the right words for the book. And the book tells children what happened at the Pulse tragedy 
how to cope with any kind of tragedy, whether it be the Pulse shooting or um, the California shootings from this past weekend, and how to feel safe after that kind of tragedy has uh, affected a child. Uh, and it's even great for adults as well. I've had adults come up to me and, and say that they love the book as well. It's really helped them process their emotions after something tragic has happened to them as well. Um, I just wanted to share a little bit. Uh, I'm half Protestant and half Jewish. So I've grown up with a little bit of everything. But one of my favorite things to do on the Jewish side is um, even at age 39, I still call dad pretty much every night of Hanukkah to sing the menorah prayers with him. Um, it, it's just, we've always been very close. It's just one of those things that even if we can't be together for every night, although he was here for two or three nights this year um, with me, but we still do it over the phone or over FaceTime. And it's just a, a wonderful tradition we'd be able to keep alive all these years. That's very nice. What I'd like you to do, uh, Keith, if you can send me your email address and also send me a digital uh, file of your cover, I'll be happy to put it on the new JCHR Now bookstore. Absolutely. Thank bookstop. you. And I wanted to let everyone know to go to jchrnow.com. It's our new website. And I just created a new, uh, actually, there's someone in this group who's giving me this great idea, and that's Mark. Mark gave me an idea to feature... Um, <laughs> presenters who have come to the group. All of them now have a uh, feature on the books uh, shop and a, and a link in their uh, books, as well as their creative projects, including yours. Music Zola and, uh, is sitting now in the book shop. So please, um, Keith, I'd be happy to, to do it. I, I, I don't get any remuneration for doing this. I'm just happy to share, to share the creative from the group. All right, so you're up. I just put our website in the chat box as well. Right. So if you would like to purchase either my book or dad's, in fact, you know what, dad, let's give them a special on the trilogy. How does that sound? <laughs> we'll give them a free copy of uh, Dreadle Dog if they purchase the trilogy. Is this the just, Jewish or the Protestant so side coming out of you, Keith? <laughs> <laughs> you don't think so, Jeffrey. <laughs> All right, well. Uh, you want me, is, did you say me? Yes, you're, you're up. Me. Yes. Okay. So um, I'm sitting, I'm looking at all your beautiful bright faces because you're in the daylight. I'm in the nighttime. So forgive the illusions. Um, I'm sitting in South Africa. I'm the daughter of two Holocaust survivors who were born in Vilna. And my mother was particularly famous because she was a singer and her brother, she was Hyla Rosenthal. She was a little star on the radio already at age 15 and 16. And her brother Leib was a prolific poet and activist and writer also. And in the Vilna Ghetto, her brother wrote a lot of the musicals and um, he was actually also part of the paper brigade. And my mother starred in all the musical productions and she basically sang and that helped save her life. And after the war, um, Leib was killed in the concentration camp Kluger, her brother. And my mother met my father after the war, after the death march and after the camps that they'd both been in. 
and they met in Lauenburg and she had bad typhus fever and he nursed her back to health and into love and they decided they would start their new lives together. My father actually knew about my mother because he was a journalist and he was already writing about her in a school competition and in, um, in various articles when she was on the radio. So he knew who she was, but she didn't know him then. And after the war, they, my mother continued to perform in um, displaced person camps all around Europe. She joined the state theater and my father got jobs as a journalist throughout the place. And in one of her performances, Molly Pickon, the famous Yiddish actress from America, came across to the DP camps and saw her perform and said, oh my goodness, you're a little mini me. We need to get you to America. We need you out of Poland. And it was through Molly Pickon, she organized papers and her impresario mm -hmm. and got my mother out of Poland, got a visa for her to go to Paris, got a contract to perform in the Paris clubs. And my father went along as um, he got papers to go as a UNESCO. There was a conference at the same time. So they snuck out of Poland on false pretenses. And fast forward, my mother continued to perform while they were waiting for papers in um, Paris. And in the interim, papers to get to America. In the interim, there was a woman from South Africa with the South African Yiddish Theatre, Consolidated Theatres, who came to Paris to look for artists to come to South Africa to join the Yiddish Theatre on a special contract or visitor. And so my mother was taken to Cape Town, South Africa. And once she landed in, it's a beautiful place. She sent telegrams back to my father and said, this is where I want to settle. It's beautiful. The Jewish community is so welcoming. It's the most beautiful place, the climate. And the rest is a different story for another day. So they got to South Africa where my sister was born a year later and then me mm -hmm. and my sister usually carried the torch. She was eight years older than me. My mother didn't speak about her Holocaust experiences. Um, my father did because he was a journalist and wrote articles all the time in the newspaper every Yom HaShoah. They organized a support group for all the survivors in Cape Town. So there were always all my aunties and uncles that I didn't have. And my grannies and grandparents were all survivors who lived in Cape Town and who filled our home regularly. So I grew up with a lot of Yiddish, but it wasn't my thing. And my sister carried the torch and told the Holocaust stories and wrote a book and wrote a musical play. It's all on YouTube to watch free. Jeff will have links. And if anybody wants an EPUB of the book, my sister's book, I'm happy to send. And it is only after she passed away and my mom passed away at age 54. Um, she had actually traveled all over the world. She continued to travel doing Yiddish theater, even on Broadway in the 60s and 70s. Um, after they had all passed away, there was a gap. And I guess the legacy fell onto me. And I only in the last 10 years began to go forward and to perform in Yiddish some of the songs that my mother sang and uncle wrote. And wrote my own little Yiddish song only two years ago, just or before lockdown. 
Um, otherwise, I'm a singer-songwriter and performance coach and recording artist, but the Yiddish has only come in in the last few years. And here we are. Okay, well, thank you. What's the weather there in Cape Town today? Oh, it's so beautiful. I can't yeah. tell you the temperature. I get confused. Um, oh, it's in Celsius, it's really, right? It's dry. It's, it's dry with a light breeze, and it's summer for okay. nine, nice. eight months of the year. <laughs> All right. So, Bonnie, you're up. Yeah. Okay. So, um, as you can see, my sister is, has joined us also, my twin sister, who's oh, in okay. Chicago. And we are originally from New York, first the Bronx and then Manhattan. Esther, and, hi. Um, raise your hand because you're the sister. Oh. Um, just wave, you, wave your hand at the moment. Just wave your hand so we know who you are. There you go. Anyway, um, okay. so our father was a survivor. Our mother was American. And um, he uh, was born 1910 in the Galicia section of southeastern Poland, what is now the Ukraine. And... Um, about an hour south of Lvov, something like that. And uh, just very briefly, he um, uh, lost a wife and two children, young children, in 1942. And uh, they, a lot of Jews had left their village to hide in the forest. If, you know, they knew they had heard there was going to be an action in their village. And they, um, he, meanwhile, um, while they were there, he went with some other people to find some food. And when they come back a couple hours later, nobody was there. They couldn't find anyone. He went back to his town and they didn't find out for two weeks what had happened, that the Germans had found them and shot everybody. You know, they took them, I guess, some ways away from there to some kind of kit or something. And they shot everyone and his wife and children were killed. And after that, he ends up in the Sambor <clears throat> ghetto. And um, there's a rather well-known action that took place there in 1943, where many, many of the Jews there were imprisoned, including think about his brother, Jews. Yeah, um, his family, his, his father, his brother's sister. His mother was immediately taken to Belzec the minute they came to Sambor, so she never made it into the ghetto. And um, they were all imprisoned and were shot. And he got one brother out because he had, my father had, working papers. So he wasn't imprisoned. And um, he asked if he could get one person out or get a family member out. And they said, okay, one person. So my uncle was able to get out. My uncle was about 12 years younger than my father. And after that, they um, escaped to the forest. They, some other, they and some other people dug a tunnel out of the ghetto and went to the forest. And um, they were just managing to get along there with them hiding at, uh, in people's barns and places. This was near where they had been from, so they knew the people they were hiding with um, at night. And then during the day, they just managed to scrape out potatoes from the ground to eat and stuff like that. And you know, at night, they were able to go to, not, maybe not every night, but some nights, uh, go and get something to eat and hide in people's barns and stuff like that. And then after about uh, a year or so of that, they uh, I think it was more uh, some uh, partisan. Hmm? Sorry, about a year and a half or more. Yeah, more than a year um, and a half. So then they, uh, the part of Russian partisan units found them and um, offered them to take them, but they had to learn to shoot a rifle, you know, in, in exchange for food. So I said, okay, we'll do that. And they joined the partisan unit and uh, they fought with them 
and my uncle was uh, wounded actually pretty pretty soon after that um, and kind of sat out the rest of the, the time there um, and my father also was wounded and then he was wounded again towards the end of the war and he became an amputee uh, his he had to have leg one leg removed at the end of the war and they managed to um, meet up again because I mean, my, my father had, was in a hospital and uh, they somehow managed to get to the um, Ferenwald the, uh, DP camp. And uh, they stayed there until 1949 when they got a visa for the US and they came there. They had some cousins in the US and um, uh, some other cousins of theirs had gone to Israel before the war. So they had quite a bit of family in Israel. And um, uh, they, they worked, my father got a job, my uncle opened a business and my sister and I were born in 1958. We had met my mother through friends of friends or something. And um, they were married in 1954 and we were born in 1958 and uh, we grew up there and that's about it. And my father was, had a lot of you know, issues, I guess you could think. You know, I think people who lost children uh, were really kind of, you know, really had a, a, like attachment disorder and things like that. I major in psychology, so I use some psychological terms. And um, a PTSD, obviously, and um, just a lot of anger issues. And, and anger. it was difficult. It wasn't yeah. the easiest Esther, do you want to add anything? Um, I think, I guess, the main thing I want to say is uh, he stayed religious. We were raised mm -hmm. Orthodox. Um, but at the same time, his behavior wasn't like what it, you know, if you're really religious, you, you should behave accordingly. And because of his emotional problems, he was somewhat emotionally abusive to us um, and to my mother. Um, we sort of lived, we kind of lived with this sort of, in my mind, a little bit of a, of a hypocrisy on Again, I'm not saying like, I don't know what else he could have done. That's just how he, I mean, there's plenty of people, religious and non-religious who have behavior problems. I mean, it's not really necessarily related to religion, but um, I'm glad that we were raised from, you know, Orthodox. Um, but at the same time, we saw this sort of dichotomy in how he behaved how, versus how we were taught of a religious person should behave and that I think for me that was a big problem I think you know we're gonna we're gonna, we're gonna come whatever. back to we're gonna come back to this subject a little bit so this sir you're up next go ahead yeah uh I'm the son of two survivors from Poland and they're the only survivors of each of their families and, uh, <clears throat> they spent most of the war uh, in con various concentration camps until liberation, and then they uh, met in a DP camp in Germany, Bad Reichenhall, and then they moved to a nearby German town where my dad worked as a, a uh, maintenance man, and that's where I was born, <clears throat> and soon thereafter, they got permission and moved to the United States, early years in Connecticut, but most of my upbringing was uh, in San Diego. I still, even though I'm now in Orange County, I still feel like a San Diego boy. And all my friends and close friends are still in San Diego. 
and that's really about it. Uh, Please share the title of your book. Yeah, it's called uh, Under My Bubba's Wings. Because my father, during the whole time he was in camps, he had had a dream, a vision, that his bubba came to him, who was already dead before the war. But she was his beloved bubba, and he was her most beloved grandchild. And she came to him in a vision. He also got typhoid during the hysteria of the typhoid. He had this vision, <clears throat> he came to him and told him, you're gonna go through some very difficult times and I'm gonna watch over you. I'm gonna protect you. So all the years of what happened, he really felt like there was a force over him as if he were under the angel's wings of his bubba being protected. One lucky stroke after another that could have gone very badly that he was saved. So uh, that, theme <clears throat> actually runs throughout the book and even the cover uh, the name of the title is under my bubba's wings okay, feeling thanks. protected thanks thanks and i want to let everyone know who just recently arrived on the new jcr jchrnow.com <clears throat> there's a new area called the bookshop and all of our presenters wing <laughs> wings all of our presenters books are now featured in that section with a link to where you can find it on Amazon. Uh, so I would advocate that all of you can find Izzer's books, Izzer's books and Sally's books and anybody else who has presented their <clears throat> book work and Zola's creative projects are all there so you can check it out. So I'm gonna go next to uh, Carolyn. So why don't you uh, tell us about yourself and, and why are you in Jerusalem if you care to tell us about that too. Oh, um... I don't, yes, I feel a little bit not, not, not quite fitting in with the group here um, in the sense that my father came from Germany and escaped in 1936, at left Germany, went to England, and he was never in, a, in a, a, any of the camps <clears throat> in Germany. My mother was born in England. Her father was a rabbi from Hungary. But he came in 1904 to England and so it's different but I was brought up with the trauma because my father was arrested by the English it's you can't compare the two and yet in our minds growing up as children I don't remember a time when I did not know about concentration camps and my father was interned in a camp in the Isle of Man and he wouldn't talk about it. It traumatized him. And there's a book by St. Simon Parks who gave a, a Zoom thing. And he said that everybody was traumatized on the Isle of Man. People who fled Germany and who were then, oh, the conditions of their arrest, they were arrested by the police and taken um, to the Isle of Man. But it was very different to what I, I knew had happened in, in, in Poland, Germany in, in the war. Um, but it was his first year and a half um, of the war was in, in a camp in the Isle of Man and he wouldn't talk about it. For him, that was trauma. And it was only in his nineties that he actually would talk about it. So we grew up not knowing and not being allowed to talk German and not being allowed to eat certain vegetables and because that's what he'd been given. So it's very different mm -hmm. to all of you. 
so far? Well, I want to, can I just interject? You're more than uh, inclusive in our group. Um, my father was not in a concentration camp. He escaped uh, Nazi Germany at age 15 and got to Palestine. So we have many people in the group who were hidden, <clears throat> were not in concentration camps or had escaped, but they all are, we all feel a connection uh, because we are part of something bigger than ourselves. So I want you to feel com totally comfortable speaking to this group and feeling that you're inclusive in this group. But maybe I can ask you why you're in Jerusalem at the moment. Well, first of all, thank you for saying that. And thank you, Zola, for, I don't know if I've just got Zola there for nodding your head and, and, and thank you. I, I'm in Jerusalem for a very simple reason that my husband, we, we were both from London and um, he, he was brought up that they would all go and live in, in Israel. And when I married him, I had to come. He'd already gone to live in Israel and I, we had to be there. So I had all my married life in Jerusalem. And um, that, that's a very simple reason. I have lots of aunts and uncles who came, had, I mean, they passed away, but they were in Palestine. And some of them fled in 33 the minute Hitler came. And they left Germany and came to Palestine. One came in the late 20s with her husband out of Zionistic feelings. And I have cousins from Hungary who fled um, from Hungary and on the Kastner train and all kinds of stories, which everybody I'm sure here <clears throat> in this place. And they came to Palestine. So um, I grew up surrounded by all of these individual traumas, if you like, from both sides of the family. So I have um, another. I have another question, a Jewish question. You're in Jerusalem. What do yes. you can you tell the group your opinion about what's going on in the government in oh. Israel? Well, um, well, uh, I'm not a political person, but I find it as appalling and horrifying, and disturbing and distressing and depressing as could possibly be, and I find that. The present government, to my mind, are a bunch of criminals, and they're all, I would, can't really say they're mentally ill, sadly they're not. Um, they're, they're crystal clear in their own minds, which I think are warped and wrong, and I won't say evil, but um, this is being recorded. I, I, I find it horrific at the moment, and I'm not a protester, but 130,000 people protested Motsi Shabbos here. Oh, I, I'm a, of an Orthodox family, a religious family from both sides, but my father brought us up that we should live as best we can our own lives. And I find it appalling at the moment in Israel. Well, I appreciate you sharing your, your thoughts. And so I'm going to go over to my, my buddy, uh, Saul, who, when we looks at the camera, we'll see that he has an SD hat for San Diego on. So uh, give, us, give us a little bit about yourself, Saul, and the book uh, that you wrote. Well, you know, uh, I, I was born in Germany after the war. Uh, it took a while for my mother to be able to uh, be able to uh, uh, conceive me. Um, she uh, she had a lot of uh, medical problems uh, after uh, surviving Bergen-Belsen. Uh, somebody brought up typhus. She had typhus and she was critically ill, but she was saved by uh, an English doctor uh, that uh, 
helped in the liberation of uh, Bergen Belsen and uh, saved her life. And, uh, you know, my dad was, uh, they, they were both from Poland. Um, the more interesting part of um, my life uh, was that uh, we came to the United States and, uh, you know, I was brought up in, a, in an Italian neighborhood because my father lost his job in the, uh, in the uh, district where, garment industry where he was working. And uh, in those days, uh, they, they really were uh, taking advantage of uh, greenhorns. They, you know, you were referred to as a greenhorn. And uh, he was able to uh, gather up enough money to be able to buy a business because in, in Poland, his family was all in business. So uh, he bought a candy store, which was the cheapest thing to buy and paid off everybody as fast as he could. We lived in the back of the candy store. And uh, the interesting part of, uh, of my life was being brought up in the back of that candy store and the mafia. And, uh, you know, uh, Izzy talks about uh, the grandmother. My mother always thought of her grandmother was always with her and always was protecting her and would always sense whoever was necessary to make sure that she would be okay and continue on with life. And uh, the consigliere of one of the uh, Mafia Five families took us under his wing and made sure that none, none of the gangsters ever really did any damage to us. They never collected any uh, protection money from us. And uh, as me, as a Jewish kid in a totally Italian neighborhood, I was protected where nobody would have the uh, audacity to ever come near or touch me because they knew who I knew. And that's basically what I wrote about in my book. And uh, it's basically your... about my mother, who uh, really was, uh, uh, you know, my, my heroine uh, throughout my life and uh, always gave me the uh, confidence and the uh, humor and the ability to go on with life. And uh, I found that uh, a lot of my friends who were uh, from other Holocaust survivor families, uh, unfortunately, uh, their parents were, uh, you know, somewhat depressed and never really got over what the tragical things that they had gone through. So I was one of the fortunate ones who had a mother who was able to nurture me and uh, make me who I am. So, uh, Sally, what was your book called? From Bergen Belson to Brooklyn. Okay. And you have, you're uh, a retired um, orthodontist. I'm a retired dentist. Dentist, and your brother is? My brother is a, a an attorney who uh, is. Uh, you know, uh, if you tell the story of your brother, tell a quick story of what's going on with your brother in New York. Uh, well, uh, I don't know if you guys have followed. My brother's always been involved with uh, many things in uh, in New York uh, with regard to uh, uh, cases where you know he defended a uh, a prisoner who hung himself in uh, in the tombs, and you know he got on television and he said the tombs is not for people killing themselves. It's supposed to be a prison. And, uh, you know, he represented the family because the warden made believe like the guy, oh, he's not going to kill himself. He's full of baloney. Anyway, that, that's just one of many, many stories that he's, he's been in the headlines. But the latest one is uh, 
I don't know if you've heard, but uh, he was uh, thrown out of the Madison Square Garden, which is a, a, for a venue for entertainment, uh, sports teams. He was going to a hockey game. And somehow they had his facial recognition because he's involved with a lawsuit against Madison Square Garden. And as a result, they threw him out. Well, obviously he, he got in the paper and he you know, got a uh, full photo in the New York Post and the whole story. And, and tonight he'll be on Nightline. I don't know if anybody watches Nightline, but uh, he'll be on Nightline tonight. So if you're interested, uh, I'm sure he'll tell you all about it because my mother used to say in Yiddish, and if you don't understand what that means, he's got, he's got a mouth that's full of nails. <laughs> so right. anyway, so that's, right. that's my brother. That's he, a very he, good, all right. So a New York attorney, which yeah, it's kind of like a tough place to be an attorney. Right, and he's also a strong advocate against anti-Semitism in New York as well. Oh, yes. And so I want to also ask Anne and Batya and Diana to come on screen with us. We'd love to have your contribution with pictures uh, as part of this uh, start of the program. So I'm going to go to Devorah. Devorah, I know you have an interesting story and please share it with us quickly. So go ahead. Well, the first thing I'm going to say is that tomorrow, um, a group called Teach the Shoah is having a Jew what they're calling a Jewish ritual originating in Israel, uh, commemorating the liberation of Auschwitz. And I have been asked to do to for a four minute presentation in the memory section. And what I'm going to be talking about is how I forced my mother, forced, convinced over 50 years, I convinced my mother to take me to Prague. She didn't want to go because her family, her family wasn't there. It was all stones. She didn't want the stones. But I finally, when she was 78, she finally agreed. So we're at the home of the one surviving cousin who survived Auschwitz, Gerta. They're chatting in German about their childhood. And we're about to go to the gravestone of her grandfather, um, Emanuel Schlosser, who was buried in the Prague Jewish Cemetery. So we get there and my mother and Gerta are completely amazed to see that not only is Emanuel stone there, and he's next to his parents, David and Rosa, but the names of the 15 family members that my mother grew up with and loved, including her parents, her grandmother, her uncles, her cousins, her 10-year-old nephew, Hansi, their names are engraved in the Prague Jewish Cemetery on Emanuel Schlosser's gravestone. And that made a big difference for my mom who didn't have a place to grieve. She just knew about the horrible, brutal murder in Treblinka, Auschwitz and Terezin. And seeing those names was very, I can't say healing, that doesn't work, but uh, 
transform it transformed the way she felt. And for Goethe and, and and next to this gravestone with these 15 names um, is a bench. And I'm imagining in this story that I'm gonna tell tomorrow, I'm imagining sitting on that bench with my family, with future generations of my family. So to the to the left is the past, the share shared of generations, and and to the right is the future so that we connect um, because of course I grew up without you know without family my mother would say that I was the child of Adam and Eve because she was cut off from her family and she was starting over and partially to remedy that um, as an adult with with a baby I moved to Israel for 16 years because I wanted to connect with Holocaust survivors. Okay, so great. I don't know. Anyway, that the program is is called Light into the Darkness. It's sponsored by Teach the Shoah. It's at 8 p.m. in Israel time, which is 1 p.m. New York time on Zoom tomorrow. So perhaps if you have a link, you can put it in the chat. And so I want to turn over to Diana. And it's so nice to have you with us. You look so much like your mother. Diane is uh, is the daughter of uh, Ruth Lindemann, who uh, from Oregon and now spends her time in Palm Springs, who's a survivor. And she usually comes on board all of our programs, but she's not here today. So uh, why don't you tell a little bit about your story? Um, go ahead. Okay. Um yeah, this is my COVID hair. Decided to let it grow out and see what happens. So we have the same color hair, I guess. Um, I'm second generation. I started a, a second generation group here about 10 years ago um, with here, one or two people here, that I... Here is Oregon, right? Here is, yeah, Oregon. Yes. Oregon for us West Coast people, Oregon for people on the East Coast. <laughs> Uh, mom's in Palm Springs, California right now, getting ready for her 90th birthday party in a couple of weeks. So she might be doing that or sleeping or writing or whatever she does during the day. She has a mix of things she does. Um, she has written three books. Um, one of them, the first one is a, um, a book about the stories that she was told as, as she, uh, was involved in Hadassah and a, and a lot of different Jewish groups and, and survivors would find out that she was Jewish and they would tell her their stories. And she incorporated it into a book, changing the names, of course, but I found out who they were later and happened to be like grandparents of the kids I went to Sunday school with. Um, some of them were spies, some of them were resistance fighters. And um, some of the families never told their kids any of the stories my dad never spoke so my mom had to get his story as well so she was born in vienna austria left when she was six um they did book tickets for shanghai in case the letter didn't come from some cousin over here um they moved the letter finally found them and they were able to come over so she sold her tickets to shanghai which is funny because my dad left at the age of nine from Nice, Germany, which doesn't exist anymore. It was crossed the border to Poland for a while. So he had to stop telling Polak jokes. 
they probably would have met in Shanghai. But anyway, he was nine when he left Germany. She was about five or six. He, she came straight to America, lived in Washington, D.C. and different places until she made her way to the West Coast. And dad stayed in Shanghai for about 10 years. My, my group that I started um, was more or less my therapy to get myself out of the house and to start talking to other kids. I knew there were a lot of second generation here and we all were taught, don't volunteer, don't, don't say who you are, don't, 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 right? Just stay in the background. But it ended up, most of my life, I was picked for the chorus to sing Christmas songs. I was picked as the little angel to hold the star over Jesus. Um, we have pictures of that as well. Um, but the second generation group that started out with one or two people has now grown to a mix. We changed the name to Next Generations Group because we have so many generations that were affected by the Holocaust and we have resumed our starting to go back into person again, but we've continued our Zoom uh, presentations once a month and our end of the year, December, we try to get together somewhere and face-to-face. -face. We encourage people to wear their masks to feel more comfortable. Uh, we've done outside activities. And her last book is her memoir, or I guess her story of her life until she gets married here in Portland. So interesting story. I just have one interesting story about her. And I'm hoping she's going to write this before. Um, uh, it, so it will become a motion picture. But a few years ago, she had a nanny in in uh, in in Austria, and we have pictures of them together. And a few years ago, I want well, yeah, like 2015, I think it was. Her nanny passed away and her grandson, Michael, she on her deathbed told him to go get these letters out of the drawer and he needed to find this woman. Oops, sorry. Um, which was my mom. So Michael, thank God for Facebook. That's how I've been finding other second generation, third generation people. Um, wrote to my mom she was thinking this was a prank and and he's just trying to extort money from me he's probably from nigeria you know things like that so he sent her this picture that nobody else has of her and the nanny together his grandmother so long story short we've gone to vienna several times to meet with him and his family i'd still like to have him do a dna test there's a backstory to that too because my uncle would be my mom's let's see my mom's dad's brother dated the nanny for a while so there was something you know something going on there's a mysterious story there and i'm hoping that we can publish the letters and the love letters that that they had too anyway so we found her um the, i mean we found the grandson but it was too late to get reunited with the nanny which my mom tried for several years so when she went to her grandmother's house, which was a store um, nearby where the nanny lived, nobody would talk to her. Nobody would admit that they knew who she was because they were afraid we were coming back to take the store back, which belonged to my grandmother. So it was an interesting story. How and many, that's, in, that's in her third book. How the, many people? Um, we chose survival, so. 
Diana, how many people are in your group now? You didn't tell us that. Um, second generation, I have about 50 people. When we get together in person, there's about 10 to 20 people. We're still, we're telling stories of people who survived the Holocaust and we're inviting people that some of them aren't Jewish. We had a, a lady who was from Siberia whose family got tossed into Auschwitz and she came and talked to us. Well, actually we did it on Zoom. Um, so now my second generation people are becoming speakers at the local Holocaust Museum in Portland, but they use us as a test ground. We, we, we let them test on us and do their presentation and then we help them critique it. And so that way they can move on to the museum and become speakers. And are you able, are you able to uh, find three G's willing to come to the group? Yes, we've started a 3G group unofficially. We were hoping to join with the other 3G groups around the country, um, but we don't have dues. We're not a 501C. We're just a bunch of kids that get together, and and that's what we do. We have a social group where we sometimes will meet up for a drink or for movies, or we've done Zoom get-togethers, happy hours on Zoom, just to chit-chat and talk. The three G's are just starting out. I think there's about almost 10 of them, but with the three G's, it's a little bit harder. They don't wanna hear so much about the stories. They wanna do more social, um, sometimes volunteer type things, or just hang out at the local bar, which is fine. So we've, we've got somebody to head that up and she's taken over and we're hoping to get them to the World Federation uh, conference in Washington, D.C. this next year as well. Okay, great. So let me go over to Anne. So let everyone know Anne has a difficulty with looking at the screen for periods of time. We were looking at your knee most of uh, this program. So uh, why don't you unmute yourself? And then uh, I also want to share that uh, Anne, Izzy, and Sally also share uh, a group here along with me. Uh, it's called the Second uh, uh, generations of the Shoah group, and uh, we have 125 second generation members here in San Diego. What we also have found, because we have a very active Jewish federation, of which my wife sits on the board, there are over, there are over 500 survivors here in San Diego County, and 30% of those survivors are under the poverty line. So we have a lot of the federation here in San Diego is working very hard to help uh, second gen, I'm sorry, gen survivors uh, with services. But Anne, go ahead, you have the floor. Okay, thanks. So um, I was born in, in Munich after the war. Uh, both of my parents are survivors. Um, luckily enough, they weren't, weren't caught. They were both on the outside. Um, my mom was on her way to a concentration camp. Uh, she was 17. And uh, I'll just tell you a quick part of the story. Um, she was caught and with about three or four girls, um, one of the girls became the leader of the group. And she said to the guard, if we give you our jewelry, uh, will you look the other way and we'll hide behind the building and we won't go on the train. And the guard said, yes. And so the girl, you know, said to my mother, give me, if you have any earrings and the other two girls give me what you have. And she handed it to the guy. It was a Ukrainian guard. And, uh, she handed it to him and he basically shot her in the head. So they knew this was not going to be a pleasant experience. Um, but they were on the train and my mom um, 
people were trying to jump. There was some opening in the cattle car. They were going to Belgitz and which was, was in Southern Poland. And um, if anyone's from a town called Zeshev, which I visited, that's where my mom was from. And uh, anyway, she, was, she said to the girl before her, um, I'm gonna jump after you. Uh, when you jump, don't throw your body out far because the Germans were on top of the train. You know, they wanted to get every Jew um, and they were shooting at whoever jumped. You know, try to just drop down rather than be a, a full target. So there was a curve in the, in the train and I mean, a curve in the tracks and uh, the train slowed down and the, the girl jumped in front of her and my mom saw she was shot in the leg. And then my mom jumped and she went straight down. Um, so she wasn't shot. And they stopped the train after the curve because a lot of Jews jumped at that point. And my mom was unconscious from the, from the fall and she landed right next to the tracks. And the girl rolled into a ravine and was watching. They basically shot everybody along the tracks. And they basically went to my mother and kicked her and hit her with a gun, but she didn't move because she was unconscious. And um, they didn't shoot her. <laughs> they shot everybody else. And then the train went on and my mother hooked up with this girl, but she had been shot in the leg. And uh, so she couldn't walk. Well, they, they, there was a farmhouse not too far ahead. And they went into the barn and they, they, they went up to the, in the top of the barn and slept up there. And the next morning, the, the farmer came in and he said, okay, come on down. These girls, my mother was, I think 17 or 18. The other girl was maybe 16. And uh, it was November, it was cold. And uh, he said, I'm taking you to the Germans. And then the wife came in and, and they had a daughter. And um, my mom was pretty psychological. And she said, she appealed to the farmer's wife. And she said, you want, you want our debts on the conscience of, of you? She, she was basically talking karma. And uh, she said, you have a six-year-old child. Do you want our blood on, you know, you, want, you really want this for your future? And she talked the farmer's the farmer's wife talked the farmer into letting, letting my mom go and the, and the girl. And she gave them her sweater, even though it was cold and coat. And that was just one story. There were many stories. Uh, my mom waited, made her way back. And there are lots of stories to tell. They're miraculous. My mother eventually made her way to Warsaw. And uh, she got a job working for a German company. <laughs> and uh, she had fake papers. And there's just lots of stories to tell, um, amazing stories. Um, and and uh, she, was, she was good at business and some of the polls said to the boss, the, the SS boss, um, we think she's Jewish. She's very good at business and she's very smart. And uh, they turned her in actually. She was turned in at the very, very end of the war and uh, she was put in prison, but her, her German boss, was amazed at how good she was and he liked her. And he said, I don't care if you're Jewish or not, I'm gonna to try to protect you. And he basically in this prison said, don't, don't, don't touch her, don't kill her. Um, because people were pretty much killed. You weren't, you didn't survive. There wasn't, and it's a long story, but she shared a cell with a woman who was a, a, a basically a double agent for the Russians, but she was sleeping with the Germans. And, uh, the reason I tell the story, well, anyway, uh, the day came when they were gonna have my mother sit in front of four or five 
Gestapo guys. And they grilled her. And she was, she knew the Catholic. Oh, unfortunately, you're frozen. They, okay, go ahead. They tried to to catch her on her story because she had a fake name and the town she was from and you know the whole bit. But she she did a good job. And when she would tell me the story, which wasn't that often, she would it would she would be nervous because it was life or death what she answered these guys. And it was like about an hour grilling at least. And they couldn't catch her up on anything. And uh, at the end, one guy slammed her and hit her in the face. And he said, I know you're a Jew, but for now, we'll let you go. And nobody got out of there. And anyway, she, it was at the end of the war. And uh, she did some sabotaging because she was in charge of a bunch of trucks that would go out into the countryside and get apples and things. And she, at the very end, she had them uh, wreck the trucks. In other words, take out the batteries and do things in her own way of having some revenge. This is just a quickie on the story. Um, and at the end of the war, her, her German boss said to her, um, I'm leaving Poland because he knew the Russians were coming. He said, can I stay at your house? And she was living in a boarding house. And she said, you can, but you have to sleep at the other end of the bed. And, uh, <laughs> you know, and I have to tell the lady where I'm living, but um, nothing happened. And the next morning he was gone. He was basically fleeing back to Germany. There are a lot more stories. Um, uh, I got it. I can't, have, I can't huh? tell you. I can't have you sell them all. But no, I, I, uh, I won't tell you all the stories. But okay. there are a lot of stories. And uh, anyway, later afterwards, this woman who worked for the Russians, the Russians came to my mother, and she vouched for her that she was indeed in the prison and that she was not with the Germans. All right, terrific. So, all right, so we're going to do a little segue here. I'm going to uh, remind Mark that he's going to be up, shortly up next, but I'm going to play a little bit of a, a trailer, which I think will all be interesting to you. It is touching upon Mark's story. So I'm going to share my screen and we'll do that. It's only two minutes and then we're going to hear from Mark. One thing that all these all those years bothers me, I never will know that how my mother really when she died. I've known about the concentration camps as long as I can remember. But I can honestly say I never used to think about it too much. At first you just hear it, it's just a story. And it's not real. But then one day you realize that hey, this this really happened and it was really my mother. Do you remember your parents well? Yes. I, I love them. I love them both. They told us to take out the clothes and we didn't, nobody wanted to go into the showers because we knew the showers are gas. It's so horrible that I, I, can't, I can't really imagine. As a matter of fact, I didn't even know that everybody's mother wasn't in a Holocaust. We walked into the camp. Immediately, they took him to the guest chamber. When my children cried because they got hurt or because they didn't get what they wanted, I, I, I didn't hear or see my children. I saw them. I don't want to feel guilty that I had put a a load on you because of my experiences. Well, you did. You did. You put a load on me. 
it's obvious that it has something to do with who I am. I don't know to what extent it does. I think I owe all my children an apology. It's the guilt and your imagination, your fantasy about what might have happened and what might have happened to you. Totally different Holocaust track. What you're talking about is the Holocaust of the mind. So I want to bring us to Mark's presentation, but I want to introduce Mark first, officially. Uh, Save yourself. Ditch oh, hold on a second. I there's a lot of alternatives. Sorry about that. And no matter how much I do this, uh, I always will have a mistake here. So let me get over here. Okay, so Mark Newhouse has created a terrific series of books called The Devil's Bookkeeper. It's a trilogy. It's a story of love, suspense in the Lodge ghetto where he lost most of his family. Mark has won the Grand Prize Fiction Series and the first prize Hemingway Wartime Series Awards and the Chancellor International Book Awards, the Golden Medal Historical Fiction and a Book of the Year in Florida's Writers Association. Uh, and Mark is honored, and I, I think this is really a testament to Mark. Mark was honored to be the name, to be named the New York State's Reading Association's Teacher of the Year. He was inspired to write his award-winning children mystery, Welcome to Monstrovia, and its sequels. And Mark has just completed writing a pilot script for a proposed television series, which he'll speak to us today. So I want to have a warm uh, JCHR welcome to Mark, who's a really uh, great friend of mine. So Mark, come on, share your screen, and give us your presentation. right there. Yep. Here we go. Yep. Hi, everybody. First of all, I want to thank Jeffrey and I want to thank everybody who has taught me so much in the time I've been with this group. I'm very, very grateful. I call the presentation Taming My Monsters. And I guess the reason for that is because of the fact that all my life I've had to try and understand the shadow, the monster that was in my life that I didn't really understand very well. I think from the stories you've told me that some of you have, have experienced very similar kinds of things. And so I'm hoping that my sharing this story with you gives you some idea that you're not alone because for, for a long time in my life, I thought I was alone. What I tell people when I do my presentation is that one, I'm not here to sell books. Two, I don't have any desire to have revenge. I don't have any anger. What I want to do is educate. I want to help people 
and I want to learn myself. So let's begin, and hopefully you'll enjoy this journey with me. My story begins in hell. This was the gates of a ghetto, the Ludge ghetto, pronounced Vudge. This is where my family was, my mom and my dad. I like to think that what I am doing is a tribute to them and to all the survivors and victims of the Holocaust. And by the way, of genocides in the past, present, and the future. This map shows you where Vudge was. Most people have heard of the Warsaw Ghetto because of the uprising, if they know about the ghettos at all. Very few people know about the Ludge Ghetto and the fact that it was the second largest ghetto in Europe, holding about 200,000 people. Less than 5,000 were known to have survived. I knew so little about this that I actually thought that it was something that existed for hundreds of years and was like Anatevka in Fiddler on the Roof. If you look to the, uh, I guess it would be the, I guess it would be the West and to the South, you'll see Ospiechum, which is where Auschwitz was. One of the questions that I'm constantly asked is, why was it there was an uprising in Warsaw and not in the Ludge Ghetto. And that is something that I was very curious about myself. This is a very rare picture of one of my only family members that I have. This is my grandmother and she's holding one of mom's sisters. Mom had five brothers, uh, excuse me, two brothers and four sisters and only my mother and one brother and one sister survived. I never met my grandparents. I don't even have pictures of any of them of, other than these. And it's kind of like the rest of my early life. It's a mystery. And as I was listening to you, some of you seem to echo the fact that your early lives were mysteries too. But for me, it stayed a mystery for almost 70 years. Uh, one of the mysteries about this is that this is on the front of a postcard. All of these photos on the back are on the on postcards, and I have no idea why that should be. This is another of one of my mom's sisters. What a beautiful child she was. I never even knew she existed. And again, it's on the front of a postcard. This is one of the this is the only photo I have actually of mom and another one of her sisters. Now my mother is the little one seated on the chair. And if you look at her eyes, it almost looks as if she saw what the future held for her family. Interestingly enough, I was born on January 28th, 1947, two years and one day after mom was freed from Auschwitz. If you look at my parents in this, uh, very rare pick. Then they were, look at my mom's leg. And this is two years afterwards. I recently found this picture and I can only conjecture from everything I 
I've learned from other people that this is where I lived after I was born until my parents came to America. We believe that we were in a displaced persons camp. We came to America in August of 1947. As I listen to your stories, I really envy the ones who know about their parents' past because I knew very little. This is a picture, a very rare one, of my father when he was young. He was kind of a mystery man to me. I never really understood him. He was very, very difficult. Uh, in 20 years, my mother finally did divorce him after everybody said, you know, you're divorcing your breadwinner. He was very brave. He was very reckless. He loved women and they loved him. Uh, if there was a deal around, my father would get into it. He was what they called a dry cook, a shrewdy. And I actually used him as the model for the protagonist of my book, Oscar Singer. And one of the questions that I raise in my book is, did he have an affair with his best friend's wife? I can tell you that my father was someone who you could not ask about the Holocaust. He was not the kind of person who would give you that kind of information. Uh, he was a very difficult person. Unfortunately, uh, he did not have a happy life. He was very successful and he was a wonderful businessman. And he had a tremendous drive for success and for survival. And he passed that on to me. My mother was my protector. And as they struggled as immigrants, they came here without knowing English. They had to work extremely hard and they had to find ways of repaying Hayas for the money that Hayas lent them to get here. She pre always protected me. This is a very rare picture of, uh, of me being held by her in Germany. And I wanted to honor her, so I used her as the cover of one of my books. By the way, the building, I have not been able to identify, but someone who I was doing uh, uh, some sharing of photographs with noticed that there were four little holes by the windows, so they think it may have been a detention camp. When I was young, I knew I was different. I understood that my parents had been in the Holocaust and they spoke differently than most other people, but I really didn't understand very much. When, we, when we, I was about 10, we moved from New Jersey to Whitestone, Queens. And when I was in fifth grade, I had a lovely teacher and this teacher had a wonderful idea. She wanted to do a grandparents day. So she handed out construction paper and crayons for us to make invitations for our grandparents. I was a very, very good kid. I was sitting at the desk, not doing anything. And the teacher came over to me and she said, Mark, why aren't you making an invitation? And I told her that I didn't have any grandparents. And she said, what happened to them? And I said, they were murdered. And she said, what do you mean? And I said, they were murdered in the Holocaust, where most of my family perished. At the time, the Holocaust was not part of the fifth grade, fifth grade curriculum. And she didn't know how to handle it. 
And to be honest with you, I didn't either. And as I said, my parents were too busy really to talk to me about this. I did pick up scraps when my parents would meet with their immigrant friends and they didn't know that I could understand Yiddish and Polish and that I was able to pick up enough that I would have terrible nightmares. This is a poem I wrote when I was about, I guess somewhere around 12 to 14 years old. It's called The Blonde Angel. The sight of an angel we long to see. Gossamer wings, gold, shimmery, promise hope and light where no hope can be. Guardian angels glowing bright, our protectors day and night. Why do I see your hollow eye stare, black uniformed nightmare? My parents, grandparents saw an angel. They stood on endless lines with faceless others, brothers, sisters, fathers, mothers, naked, head shaved, holding their breath, being judged by the angel of death. Starch uniform, no silvery gown, blonde hair, no sparkling crown. Demon smile, dripping guile. He held the key to life as deadly as a knife. Points in air, you've won. Door one to nothingness, nowhere. Grandparents sent to the door, disappear, see no more. Sent to unmarked graves, mom, dad, made angels slaves. He sends them all to his darkest pits. In this hell he rules, Auschwitz. I dream of angels in my nightmares. When you have nightmares like that, you really don't ask too many questions. And maybe you sort of are afraid to do much research on your own. As I grew up, I had the same concerns every other kid had, finding girlfriends, finding a life for myself and finding a career. And I became a teacher and I loved teaching. I was named New York State Reading Association's Teacher of the Year. And Newsday, which was the sixth largest newspaper in the United States, came to do a story about me. And when they published it, it was called Madcap Teacher Opens Books and Opens Minds. I sent a copy to my mother and my mother called me up and she said, Maxla, that was my name in Germany, Max, and it means little Max. She said, what is a madcap? Doesn't it mean that you're crazy? Well, I tried to explain her that meant that I used a lot of different ideas for teaching, and some of them might be considered a little crazy. Well, the following week, WPIX Television came to interview me, and the reporter was supposed to stay with me for 20 minutes. He stayed for about two hours, and finally he said to me, you know, he said, I heard you wear costumes when you teach. So the kids started shouting and said, oh yeah, dress as Inspector Clouseau. So I went into my closet and I got my trench coat and I, I never played an instrument, partly because my dad never had patience. He thought you had to be Paderewski the minute you took a, a, a piano lesson, for example. Anyway, so I got my trench coat out and I put it on and I had a kazoo. And when they did the piece on television, the first scene you saw was of me coming out in a trench coat playing my kazoo. 
So my mother called me around 11 o'clock at night and she said, so Maxila, last week I had to tell all my Yenta friends you aren't crazy. This week I have to tell them you're not a flasher. Anyway, I loved my mom. And one of the things I learned was that when she was not around, I had to find someone to talk to. And so I did my talking with my pen. That's when I began writing. The pen was like a magic wand for me. It was a way for me to solve problems. And the truth is I taught about the Holocaust in my classes, but not as a personal experience. And I didn't really ask much about it. I spent those years creating fantasies, monsters, children's books. I was influenced by love of Perry Mason and Sherlock Holmes and Edgar Allan Poe. Never in my wildest dreams did I realize that the monsters that were a shadow in my life could not be done away with. They were always going to be with me. And then one day my mother, already in her 80s, did a tape for the Steven Spielberg Shoah Foundation. She gave me a copy and I did not look at it for several years. And then one day I found the copy and I took it out and I did listen to it. And my mom was older and she'd forgotten a lot of her story and maybe she didn't want to share all of it. But there was one line in the story that really struck in my mind. And I had a contest I wanted to enter with a short story. And so I wrote this story called The Warehouse and I entered it in the contest. And to my surprise, it won. Another surprise was the judge's sheet because the judge wrote, this is an amazing work of fiction. For two years, I was too embarrassed to show that story to my mom. And then finally, we decided to go down to Miami, about four hours away from where we were living. And the last hour of the last day that I was with her, I gave my mother the book, the anthology the story was in. And I said to her, Ma, I want you to read this story. And next month, I'm going to come down and interview you. And I want to find out what really happened. I set up an appointment to see my mom about a month later and two days before Linda, my wonderful wife, who by the way is from England, she and I got a phone call from my stepfather who is another Holocaust survivor from Sosnyovich, a wonderful, wonderful man. And he told me that my mom was in the hospital. Linda and I raced down to Miami, but we got there 10 minutes too late. My mom had passed away. I held her hand and I cried. I had not only lost my mom, but I'd lost that part of our legacy. I would never ever know how she survived. So what was the one line that my mother told me that I so regretted losing the story? This is a picture, again, a very rare one of mom holding me as a baby in Germany. She told me that as a young girl, 
she was employed in a warehouse. And working in that warehouse, they taught her to run her hand flat over the clothing to check the hems and the seams for anything that she could find there. I lost the story of her mom, who was always very sickly, who suffered from asthma, how she, of all her family, survived and was sent to the death camps from the Ludge Ghetto in one of the last trains. Sadly, there was no one left to tell me the rest of the story. Shortly after that, I discovered that mom had given me a gift. It was a monster of a book. It was called The Chronicle of the Ludge Ghetto. When I opened the book, I realized it was signed by the man who translated and edited the book. It was published by Yale University Press in 1984. I sat down and I began to read what I could not believe I had in my closet and had not even opened before. It was the anonymous entries by a group of men in a room in the same building where the Nazis were, who were writing about the daily events of the ghetto. They could show no emotion, no judgment, other than being totally supportive of the policies of their chairman. Was it that they were uncritical? Was it that they were just accepting everything that was happening to them? When did they know what was happening to the Jews of Europe? As I sat there for three days reading this book, all I could think about and was circling in my head was one of my favorite movies, 12 Angry Men. Because these men in this room were giving their version of what was happening each day to them as the noose tightened around the ghetto. Incredibly, I had never heard of the leader of the ghetto, whose name was Chaim Rumkowski. He was also called the eldest of the Jews. And what he did shocked me so much and left me with so many questions. Was he a savior who saved about 5,000 Jews, including my parents? Or was he a devil, the collaborator that worked with the Nazis? He believed that work would save the Jews of the ghetto. So he turned the ghetto into a labor camp for the Jews, a manufacturing hub that made materials for the German military. A question that haunts me even now is when did he know the final destination that he was sending the ghetto residents to? And finally, what would I do if I were faced with these terrible decisions? This is a painting of Romkowski, and you can see the famous Ludge Bridge in the back that was built so Jews could not walk on the same streets as the Germans. He opened up orphans for the children, and he promised that he would protect them. 
He believed that if he did not enforce German decrees, that the Germans would invent, would take over and anything they would do would be much worse. So he created his own police force and they were so feared, almost as feared as the Gestapo because they were enforcing these strict, very strict German decrees. Was he a collaborator? This is a picture of Romkowski who was kept waiting all day by Himmler outside. Basically Himmler was his master and he was the dog waiting for him all day. In his belief that he could save children, he put them to work. I never understood why my father was so secretive about his name and his age. And after he died, we learned that he had changed his age and his name many, many times. One of the reasons was so that he would stay in the ghetto so that I guess it was a case of the devil you know is better than the devil you don't know. Romkowski's police ruthlessly enforced their de the decrees of the Germans, but would it keep the Germans from becoming more intrusive? Would Romkowski succeed? I knew that if I wanted to write about this, that I would be returning to the hell that I had sort of put in the shadows behind me. But life is a full circle. As I contemplated the idea of writing these bo this book, I knew it would be years of research. And I said to myself, I can't do this. I write children's books. I'm not talented enough to do it. And finally, I said, I have to do it because my children and grandchildren and future, future generations really do have to know what happened. They had to know what for so many years I did not know. I did not know what the ghetto was like. The Germans used starvation, freezing cold and disease to kill Jews before the final solution. They also used hope. If they could make people in the ghetto believe that work would save them, then they would not have to use so many soldiers. They would not have to expend so many resources to keep them under control. So they used terrible tricks, such as postcards from those they deported that were really written by German soldiers. The chroniclers of the ghetto supported Romkowski's plan, his strategy, but could it keep the Nazis out, which was his goal? Romkowski said the worst thing would be if the Nazis took over, but what was the price of survival? This is a short excerpt from my from my second book. The German soldiers were ringed around the perimeter. They were as usual armed. They reminded me of vultures, cold eyes staring down at the crowd, waiting for some signal to fly down and tear what little flesh we had left 
from our weary bones. The chairman had called a meeting of all the residents in the ghetto to make an announcement, and they were filled with hope. The chairman removed his familiar hat, and the crowd, expectant, desperate for good news, fearing anything else, waited for him to begin. I always found his voice harsh, raspy, but his firmness comforting. Today, he seemed to be starting with an oddly restrained tone. A severe blow has befallen the ghetto, he said, and paused. They're asking from it the best it possesses, children and old people. The buzz was all around me. What was happening? I felt the shock, an earthquake, but what did it mean? Romkowski waited for quiet and began again. I have not had the privilege to have a child of my own, and therefore I devoted the best of my years to children. I lived and breathed together with the children. I know you love children. Why are you repeating this? We believe you love children. What did you say before? It was a mistake. I heard wrong. The audience was silent, all eyes on the man in the tweed coat who said, I never imagined that my own hands would have to deliver the sacrifice to the altar. Abraham had been ordered by God to sacrifice his son on the altar. Sacrifice? Did everyone else hear what I heard? The voice on the microphone cracked with emotion. In my old age, I must stretch out my hands and beg. Brothers and sisters, give them to me. Fathers and mothers, give me your children. I was shocked when I read this. I realized that if I had been born just a few years earlier in the Ludge Ghetto, where my parents were, I would not be here now to share this story. Did Romkowski save the children? Ostrovsky, the protagonist of my book, who is now an administrator for Romkowski, believes his daughter will be saved. He is terrified of what Miriam, his young wife, will do when she learns of Romkowski's speech. By the way, this is an honest, reporting of what Romkowski said. And it was said on September 4th, 1942. Romkowski's smooth running machine did not last very long, unfortunately. My parents were among the few thousand who miraculously survived. I don't know how. Nobody knows exactly when, when Romkowski and the chroniclers, the Jews themselves, knew about the final destination. Families were separated. And we can never forget that people who were different, people who are considered undesirable, six million others were also killed.
in my research and in my book, one thing stood out as a possible clue as to when they knew. And that was the truckloads of used clothing and shoes with heels and soles torn away that arrived in the ghetto. After writing my books, shocked by the events, well, actually, what actually happened was I sat down on my computer finally after I made up my mind I was going to do this, at least for my family. And I wrote 700 pages in about 30 days. I was exhausted, totally drained. I had never had an experience like this in my life. It was really as if my lost relatives were writing the book through me. And I decided to use my mother's sister's photograph, her beautiful face, as a cover of the book, because there is no tombstone, there's no headstone, there's nothing to honor her memory. I submitted, I submitted the book to a contest. And I was shocked when it won the gold medal in historical fiction and first place historical fiction. And finally, the top prize book of the year from the Florida Writers Association. Nobody was more surprised than me. We honored mom's memory, as I said, on book two which went on to win other medals. And then I ran into a problem. People who read my book wanted to know what happened next. And so after about six months of, of being able to get away from the ghetto, I had to return. And I wrote book three, which subsequently won other medals and centered about this beautiful child. And I decided to use my mother's aunt, who I never had the privilege of meeting, as the cover of my book. I just really could not understand, I still can't, how anybody could hate a child, any child. Book three won a first place award in the Eric Hoffer International Book Awards. It also won first place in the Top Shelf Book Awards and a silver medal in the Florida Authors and Publishers Association. Finally, I decided to enter the books, still not believing that they were as, as good as people were saying in, the, in an international competition. And that was really a shock because it won the first prize gold medal in the uh, Hemingway Wartime Series Award. And it also won the grand prize fiction series in the Chanticleer International Book Awards. And as I said, nobody was more surprised than I was that a book about the Holocaust could be a winner against so many mysteries and suspenseful books that were pure fiction. Shortly after that, I was asked if I was able to write a book that could be used in schools. 
And so I wrote a book called My Family's Secret, The Holocaust. And in this book, uh, a boy learns that his whole family was killed during the Holocaust. And in a sense, it's almost what happened to my son who was here, here before, because he really did not know the story. And it's based on what happened when a grandfather recovers a building in Poland after many, many years, and then finds squatters living into the building. And like all my books, it is not a book that centers on hate. It centers on love and on understanding. And it also won awards, it won a top prize in the Florida Writers Association and in the Florida Authors and Publishers Association. I think the best thing that we can do to get revenge on the Nazis is our children, our future generations. And my son who was here before is one of the kindest and most wonderful people you could ever meet. The only book he ever wrote was to help children and adults deal with the tragedy of the Pulse Massacre and other acts of violence that are happening so much today. Um, it was the only book he ever wrote, the first book he ever wrote. And I was shocked that I had to wait almost 50 years to win awards and he won one on his very first book. Uh, he also was able to get artists from Orlando to illustrate the book which was a tremendous accomplishment. And all the money from his book is donated to the Pulse Foundation. People ask me all the time, why am I speaking now about the Holocaust? What is it that has changed my life so dramatically in such a short amount of time? And the answer is, I think, in this poem that I wrote for Kristallnacht back in uh, a few years ago, it's called Broken Glass. They shattered the glass, and so it starts. They attacked our past. They could not kill our hearts. They lit up night with cries of hate but could not extinguish the light of our faith. They tried to crush us under their heels, but we survived because of God's will. A thousand synagogues they ruthlessly burned as mobs rampaged with hatred learned, setting fire to our shops, beating those they might meet, a night of murder in the hate-darkened streets. A night heralding a longer night of fear, our cries falling, on the world's deaf ears. The death camps opened their poisonous hands and the hate flowed freely in many lands. November 9th, 1938, an explosion of unchecked hate. The Kristallnacht that heralded the long December, a night of rage we must remember. Six million more stars soared into the sky and so the flame of our faith would not die. The light of our beliefs we hold dear, our heritage from the past, even as once again we hear the frightening echoes of broken glass. All over the world, we're seeing the echoes of broken glass. And even in the United States, 
we're seeing it now. So it's more important than ever that we share our stories and that we share them to our children. And yes, that means I have to cope or learn to tame my monsters. And this group has been a huge help to me in learning how I can learn about more stories and share more of my life so that it never happens again. Thank you, my friends, for letting me share this with you today. Well, thank you, Mark. You can take yourself off the screen share. I appreciate it. And then um, we're going to open up the audience if there are any questions for you uh, in the work that you've done in the research and all the books that you've read. And I would love for you to share any of authors' tips, because I know a lot of our members have an interest of putting their family stories down. And we have just a few people who are still with us. We have nine people here. So um, is there any help that you've learned about uh, creating uh, stories and getting them published? Actually, yes. You know, it's a funny thing. I, I live in the villages, which is a retirement community of about 130,000 people. And I write a column every month uh, called The Writing Bug. I do it as a volunteer. And many, many people ask me, how do, what's, is there a simple way to get back into the past and organize it? And so I came up with an idea, which I've used with people in their 80s. And what I suggest is, Go to your photographs, pick out some photographs that mean a lot to you and to take those photographs and either make photocopies of them or use a piece of tape and tape them on blank sheets of paper. Put them in order, okay? And then underneath each photograph, write a caption, maybe one sentence or two sentences telling what that photograph is about. Now, as you look at the photographs and they're in order, you will see maybe there are some gaps that you don't have photographs for. Take another piece of paper and write one or two sentences about what that photograph would be about. Then when you have time, go back to those photographs and ask yourself, which of those pictures and captions most captures your passion? that you wanna share and sit down and write one paragraph or two paragraphs. Now, some people can no longer write or don't want to write on a, on a computer. Well, you can dictate it to, to Word or to your telephone because your telephone has that ability. You don't have to write a lot. One of the best books I ever read was a very short book, Tuesdays with Maury by Mitch Album. It's a very short book, but it makes people laugh, it makes people cry. But the most important thing you can do, and I so regret, I, this is why I do this, because I have such guilt that I lost my family's story. And there's no one left who can tell, tell me exactly what happened. I mean, I can piece parts together. But your story is so important to share. And that's why I'm, I'm so honored that I, I've been included in this group and that I'm learning so much from your stories. Every one of your stories touches my heart. I must tell you one other thing, that my books have won a number of awards now. 
and they are now audiobooks as well. And more important to me, believe it or not, is the reviews that I'm getting for the books. Because they're independently published, one of the hardest things is to get the reviews. And this week, we are at 495 reviews on Amazon, which is really kind of amazing. But more than the number is when you read the reviews, because they tell me that something I've done in my life is touching people's hearts and souls and minds. And that to me is the most important way we can share our knowledge of the Holocaust because your stories today, just they just triggered my mind and they touched my heart and soul. And Jeffrey, that's why I'm so grateful to be here and why I was willing to share you know, this story, even though I, I, I really do feel tremendous guilt about what's happened to me. And so this is my way, I guess, of unloading some of that guilt. So we'll turn it over. Is there any questions for Mark? Just raise your hand or speak out. There aren't a lot of us left. So, um, and if there isn't, um, well, sound doesn't seem like there are. Uh, I think- uh, I have a, I oh, just wanted to say- All right, great, go. Yeah. <laughs> I don't see why you feel guilty. I don't believe it was anything that you did that you should take as a guilt upon yourself because of circumstances that you didn't get the story firsthand and so on. For example, in my case, my dad used to tell me all the stories and the episodes that would happen to him since I was a little kid, since I was almost a baby. It was just part of his way of being. And I can't take credit for it. And if he hadn't told me that, I couldn't feel guilty about it because that's, that's the way he was. My mother, for example, said almost nothing. I know very little of her story. She felt I could see it was too painful for her to talk about it. So I don't see that you have any reason to feel guilty. That's my opinion. You know, you can, I've tried to rationalize all my life. You know, I was a classroom teacher and I taught about the Holocaust, but I never really understood. And, and, yeah, a college professor asked me a question. I, I spoke to, with Jeffrey about this. A college professor asked me a question. He said, you know, with all the genocides that have existed in history, why is it that the Holocaust is so significant? And I have to be honest with you. I, I didn't have an answer at first. And then I went home and thought about it. And I said, you know, there have been genocides of African-Americans and and of, of Native Americans, and there've been genocides all over the world. But what makes the Holocaust so different, I think, and again, it's just my opinion, is that first it was state, it, it was state mandated. You know, it was a state policy, which is absolutely incredible. The second thing is that six million civilians, not military people, six million men, women, children were killed in the most mechanical, impersonal way, simply because of, I guess, their birth, their religion. And the third thing is that if you look at 
the whole idea of a Holocaust, it was illogical. Hitler's in a world war and he used some of his best minds, his resources, his trains to, to commit murder, mass murder. And that's totally illogical. And in my book, the protagonist is an engineer and he finds it illogical. And in a sense, I do too. I created him almost like a, a mock-up of how I feel about it, okay? And the last thing that most people don't realize is never in history before or after have so many millions of people been killed in such a compressed period of time. If you think about it, it was about six years. So when you say to me, okay, you know, I shouldn't feel any guilt. The truth of the matter is, until I was 70, I never really recognized how significant that was in my life. And I'll tell you one more thing, and I don't share this with anybody, but I will share it with you. I was the only person in my school for most of my life that was a, a uh, born in, a, in Germany uh, and two Holocaust survivors. And I'll tell you the truth, I, I wore that kind of as a badge, but I didn't understand what that badge was. Uh, it, it's a funny thing because when, when I was a teenager, you know, I had no problem telling, telling girls, for example, my past, hey, I'm a Holocaust survivor, I'm different. And they would be very interested in that. It was almost like a like like a like an opening line. Zola's laughing, but yes, it's, it was almost like an opening line. So the guilt there is that I really should have done more. I really should have known more. And as a teacher, and when my mother was interviewed by a total stranger, a graduate student, that should have been me. And I'm not going to excuse, you know. I'm not gonna excuse what I did. I was traumatized, absolutely. But you know what? I don't want my, I don't want to be excused from what I feel because it, it makes me do things now to share and learn more. Devora, you wanted to ask a question? Just unmute yourself, please. I more wanted to express my appreciation Mark, I've been very moved, not only by you, but also by your son and the fact that you are really taking your, your trauma, you're sharing it with us, you're sharing it with the world, and you're doing something to help the rest of us. So I just wanted to say thank you. Thank you very much. I appreciate that. And you're, you're, you're just helping me tremendously. I'm learning so much. And Zola, do you have, did you say you had your hand up? So I can totally relate to the badge that you wore, Mark. Um, as a child, I also was, you know, very, we were in a public school, which was mixed um, religions. Um, and I was also so my sister was eight years older, but when so I had a different schooling to her, um, and I was definitely also the only child of survivors. And I, from a little age, knew my parents were special. They were different, but there was a specialness 
that yeah. made them amazing. So, of course, we didn't understand as children what it was and, and the pain and the suffering, although we did, you know, subconsciously. But there was definitely this air that I'm special because my parents were special. So, yes, I totally get the whole badge thing. The other thing I think about the guilt thing, I, so first of all, I think you, so many of us through, through listening to 2G stories, I think we've all heard how different parents treated their experience and how they were going to share it with their children. And that many did not share the stories because they did not want you to know the suffering. They didn't want to burden you. So it was their choice. It's, it, it's not a guilt thing that you need to carry. Um, because of their circumstances, they chose whether to protect you or to protect themselves from seeing you hurt, whatever their, you know, there's a whole series of explanations and, and concepts about it. Um, and I'm thinking when you talk about, you know, that should have been you as opposed to, you know, the Shoah Foundation interviewer. It couldn't be you because your mother couldn't tell you those stories. And I That's think, can you change the, the rhetoric in your head thinking of it's not guilt that's making you do this and research and, and, and tell the story. I think for me, I've learned over time because I've only started to tell the story again through creating website, doing workshops now, telling the stories. I think it's the connection that you're keeping alive to your family. I think it's coming possibly, could it be coming from keeping your lineage, keeping your legacy, spreading the legacy, that it's not through guilt, that it's through sharing the story of your family and in that way you're keeping the connection going from the past down to the future through the generations and through the rest of the world you're honoring everybody who was lost i don't see that it must be from guilt i think that every step you're doing now is only because you could do it now you couldn't do before you didn't know before you know you didn't even feel that you needed to do before because you were you were protected while your mother was alive you weren't meant to do this yeah that's really you know you're right you're so i think you're honoring you you're honoring now mm -hmm. that i i i i certainly am not doing what i'm doing out of guilt and i feel that you're doing <clears> the same thing and i therefore offer that it's not out of guilt and that the guilt there is no guilt for guilt for what you're well, doing this guilt. from a place of love. You know, there was guilt, but you're right. Uh, I think that's why I call it taming my monsters, because I am taming <clears throat> the, those yeah. feelings that are inside me. I think that's, you're, you're a very compassionate person, Zola. I appreciate that very much. Thank <laughs> you. I, I, I carried, I did carry some guilt myself, because I was the younger sister who was not interested in carrying the torch and telling the stories because my sister did it. She went to Vilna and she filmed and was making a documentary of the whole <clears throat> history and the life story, begged me to come with and I didn't want to go with. And so there was a little bit of guilt of that. But when I look back, she did all those things. <clears throat> I was the caregiver and the love giver and the shmushy, mushy, mushy with the parents. 
And now I'm telling the story. Now I'm carrying the torch. Now I'm sharing and researching and for the next generations and to keep my connection and to honor those who couldn't speak. You know what? Maybe guilt's not the right word. Do that for you. Maybe guilt's not the right word. Maybe it's humble. Maybe it's being humbled by how much other people know that I did not know. Yes. You know, but look how much you a, know now. It took me a long time before yeah. I, you know, spoke, even I after think, I wrote the books. I think remember that when you say how much other people know, they know because they either experienced it or they were told. Mm. So you have to forgive yourself <laughs> for not knowing what you didn't know because you didn't even know what you didn't know you should know. Jeffrey, I think I'm going to have to, I think we have to lie down on the couch pretty soon. <laughs> Let me Mark. just add, go ahead, yes, sir. I want to, yeah. I want to get I just want to say, Mark, you have done great mitzvahs on behalf of the memory to remember and honor the people. Yep. In our past okay, and what so they I, went through. I want to introduce, I want to get, that means a I lot have nothing to me, but so accolades to say for you. Okay, you I want to get have any negative feelings about it. I want to get Sammy mm -hmm. into this because Sammy's a survivor. He's a huge uh, supporter of our program. He's in New York, so Sammy, welcome. Uh, say hello to everyone, and I, I wonder if you can add anything to the comments. And you have a different perspective, <clears throat> obviously, as being a survivor. You have to unmute yourself, please. I'm very honored to be a part of this group. Uh, I listen to many, many stories. Uh, Mark, you did a uh, marvelous job in uh, telling us, okay, what you wanted to tell us. Uh, but I want to tell you something. I went through, like uh, all of us, uh, through many ups and downs. The one thing that was missing in my life, okay, is that uh, from my father's side, from 42 people, only two survived. My uncle was only a refugee. He was never, uh, he was not a survivor. And uh, I was subjected to medical experiments. Uh, my life was saved by a German woman, but that's not that important. But the one thing that was missing in my life is having, okay, uh, how shall I say, uh, a family. I never knew anybody except my parents. I did not know anybody. And I started to speak only in 2008. And I started to speak for a very simple reason, because I gave my first presentation to sixth graders. Uh, I did not know much about it, did not know that I can tell a story. I felt I don't have a real story because I was too young. I was a year and a half. So obviously I have no memory of that period of time. Um, my parents tried to shield me. They did not want me to, uh, you know, go to have the burden of knowing what happened really. Okay, so I could have a normal childhood. And uh, the thing that really uh, I miss all my life is having an extended family. And for me, feeling the way that I am uh, talking about it today to schools, uh, various organizations, and everything else, is uh, I'm honoring not only my parents, uh, the uh, uh, victims uh, of the Holocaust, but I also feel 
that I recognize also the survivors, okay, and especially uh, the people that uh, today are talking and uh, making this alive. And I also found out something very interesting uh, that right now we have the fourth generation of young people, okay, that are starting to talk and to tell the story. And I am telling to the kids, you don't have to have somebody that went through the Holocaust. They are so much, there's so much information, okay? Pick up, okay, somebody's story. Doesn't have to be yours, somebody else's story. And personalize it. What does it mean to you to talk about it? Because for me, what's important uh, is not the trauma. Everybody and everybody reacted in a different way. It's to understand, it's beyond comprehension. How is it possible that ordinary people from Germany, from Europe, from other countries, from, found it not only accepted, they found it required to annihilate one group of people of the Jewish people. And what I do when I talk, I concentrate on the history, how it happened, and going through five different stages that people did not react in time, and that each step led to escalate, to go further until it finally reached a point of no return. So I have to leave, but I want to tell all of you, thank you for allowing me to say the few words. And Mark, thank you for doing a marvelous job, okay, doing your presentation. Thank you thank all. You, God bless. God bless you all. And I'm going to let Sammy have the last word. So thank you all thank you for uh, coming. We're thank also you. doing another session at uh, six six uh, six p.m. Pacific time tonight. I know Zola, you will be sleeping, but if anybody else wants to uh, uh, join us again, we have always something different we learn from these presentations. Mark will be coming back and doing his presentation again this evening because we're hoping to reach a bunch of people who are not available during the uh, during the day. So we'll see you later, hopefully. And also, I want to let each of you know to go visit the jchr.com website for everything Jewish every day. So take care, everyone. Love you guys. And we'll see you again. Thank you Bye. so much. Bye-bye. <laughs>